it's like a beautifully designed space with like really fascinating history that's like often left out of history books. Like we're really proud to showcase like working class history, uh, social justice history, um, and amplifying the voices of marginalized communities um, by front and like centering their histories. That was Tenderloin Museum's executive director, Katie Conry. I'm Jeff, and this is Storied San Francisco, a podcast all about the artists, activists, and small businesses that make this city unique. The Tenderloin Museum has been on my wish list for a long, long time. Last summer, Alex Spoto from the museum reached out just as we were wrapping up season five and heading into the break and our Hungry Ghost show. Fast forward to this past November, when I sat down with Katie for a wide-ranging conversation about Katie's life, what brought her to and has kept her in San Francisco, and the history of the Tenderloin and the museum that honors the neighborhood. Check back next week for part two and the conclusion of our episode on the Tenderloin Museum. Here's Katie. Uh, I'm from Oceanside, California. Heard of it. Yeah, there's a train station. I've stayed in Oceanside. <laughs> yeah, it's cute. It is, in fact, on the Oceanside. It is. It's like a working class beach town. There yeah. aren't that many left in California. So. And big in skateboard. I skateboarded in the late 80s, early 90s, yeah. mid to late 80s. And Oceanside was huge. Yeah. But I was in Texas, so did I, you know, I was just like, it was this magic thing. So. Yeah, what my parents was... also grew up in Southern California, like from the LA area. Okay, so then they're they're like, let's go a little bit south from away from the riffraff of LA, or what no. was that? Um, I mean, I was born in Orange County, mm. and I think my parents were both public school teachers, and I think they felt like they were being priced out. Oh. And they moved the family to Oceanside. That too. Yeah. That too. Um, and I left the second I could when I was eighteen. <laughs> um, had some like great experiences growing up, but always felt didn't feel felt a little alienated from the community it was a very mm. conservative community okay um i and i always felt that way about it um this kind of a bit lonely in some ways mm. um and then i went to school at berkeley and had like the exact opposite feeling then about like the bay area like okay. i felt really connected and loved the community right away yeah yeah. So I, I pretty much never looked back and never left. Okay. Um, and I've been here for over 20 years. I was going to ask you to, yeah, like kind of rough time frame. So late 90s, early 2000s kind of thing? Yeah, early 2000s and then moved to San Francisco in the mid 2000s. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So. Uh, I loved it. Right. <laughs> yeah, I've, uh, I've always lived in the Mission. So I was at uh, 20th and Shotwell for like oh, we were 14 years I was and at then... 20th and Mission. We yeah. Were, we were neighbors. Oh, yeah. That's the block. Um, mm-hmm. And then, yeah, my husband and I moved to like 25th Street, like during shelter in place when the, I mean, oh. I na- you know, I had. We moved from a rent control place to a rent control place. Oh, excellent. But excellent. I never even thought that that was possible no. until the rents, you know, drastically fell, you, you don't know, in an unpredictable way. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was, uh, and that's a, I feel like another way that there's a lot more opportunity in San Francisco is that the rents really have, 
are back to some kind of reality from being astronomically high. I like how you qualify that uh, some kind of. Some kind of it's, reality. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those of us who live here know what that means. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I, yeah, I've always had, like, I had this experience of feeling really disconnected from a community and then an experience mm. of feeling extremely connected. So, yeah. Like, both are really a big part of my experience. Right. Yeah, as a person. Had you, before you, I guess, came to Berkeley, had you visited the Bay Area or San Francisco specifically prior to that? Sure, yeah. My mom loved San Francisco, and we had friends in the area, and we came up like okay. almost once a year. Okay. What kind um, of things would you do, and where like, where in town would you go? Uh, we always went to the tea garden. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <Always>. Okay. Yes. <laughs> um, we went to the Exploratorium sometimes. Back when it was... Yeah, back uh, when it was the Palace of Fine Arts. Yeah. I remember we stayed with some family friends at a hotel um, on... I think it was, yeah, that highway that you're on after Van Ness when you're heading to the Golden Lombard. Gate Bridge. Lombard. Yes. Yeah. Um, a lot of motor uh, motels and motorway yeah. places and we to stay. stayed in one of them. And okay. it was like a genuinely like old building, which I was so fascinated by, like growing up in the suburbs where everything was like cookie cutter and new yes. and I was so charmed by the idea of actually getting to like live in an old building so that was something I manifested for myself fun and that was like really intrigued me about staying there you could really yeah. just like feel feel the ghosts and I'm guessing this would have been 90s yeah those trips mm -hmm. yeah so by the time you made the decision to come up to go to school to Berkeley you had an idea of what San Francisco and the Bay Area were like yeah, but when I was at Berkeley, like, I spent a lot of time, like, there. Um, sure. Yeah, I lived in, like, the Berkeley Cooperative System. Okay. Which was an amazing experience and community and, like, you know, everything. You know, we're, we're a little bit insular. You know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, Shared responsibilities and groceries and that kind of thing? Or, like, what? Yeah, but yeah. also, like, all the socializing, all the parties, like, all happen right there. You okay. Know? Um, I definitely went to the city sometimes uh, to just, like walk around downtown or go to Golden Gate Park or go to shows sometimes at the bottom of the hill. Mm -hmm. But I also just spent all my time at Cloyne, if you're familiar with it. It's uh, the largest housing co-op in North America. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It makes sense that that would be at Ber in Berkeley. Yeah. Also. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's got the most extensive system other than Michigan. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. So, after, like, how long after, and I assumed you grad you graduated from I Berkeley. Mm -hmm. How um, long after that did you move to San Francisco? I moved to my place on Shotwell Street pretty much right away. Right away. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you were there until the pandemic. Yeah. Dang. <laughs> Do you want to talk about the mission in those days? I'd love to, you know, hear your experiences. I know I was there and I had my own, but... <laughs> yeah. I mean, a ton of fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, like what kind of things were you doing? Where and what? Like, where did you go eat? Where did you, if you drink, where did you drink? That kind of thing. A lot of time at uh, the knockout mm -hmm. and the phone booth and the mm -hmm. makeout room, um, going to shows, hanging out with friends. Mm -hmm. um, so in the twenty teens, tens. Oh right, the what yeah, are the twenty tens. Twenty tens. I got involved with Adobe Books. Oh yeah, which you're probably familiar. Yeah, yeah. So, I was one of the uh, 
group that raised the money to move the store to 24th 24th. Street. Yeah, okay. When they were evicted from 16th Street. Yes. um, And to turn it into like a worker-owned cooperative and to the the gallery became a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was an incredible, that's how I got like, all my event programming, planning, oh, arts okay. experience, and how I met like a lot of the artists that we even then ended up working with some of them at the Tenderloin Museum. Oh wow! Okay, yeah. just you just kind of like started from the ground up doing yeah, that I kind mean, of thing. Yeah, I decided I wanted to do like event planning, particularly like museum public programming potentially. Um, and I kind of just showed up to one of their meetings and said, I'm an event planner. I want to do all of your events. And they said, cool. So it was an internship I like made for myself. Amazing. You just, just put like, the hat on showed and up showed and up. did it. So yes. I did all of our like community events, which I mean, Adobe still has like so many film screenings, readings, music events, mm-hmm. um, it's a really active community space and it's so beloved. Yeah. So, I mean, raising the money was difficult. I mean, we raised $60,000, I think, in a really grassroots way. Mm-hmm. That's that's really difficult to do for mm-hmm. grassroots fundraising. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, the love and the support was really there. Yeah. Um, raising money, the I'm going to call it the old-fashioned way. Like, this is before... No. crowdsourcing no it no? wasn't before it was right in the heyday to some degree of that kind of crowdsourcing early, yeah early, early. okay got it so in that way is good because people were still kind of doing those like kickstarters um okay i think we used like a more non-profit focused one but right um i mean it was you know the you just keep tracking tracking all of that kind of fundraising, all of like the rewards we were giving people too was like right. a huge lift. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously really worth it. And well and also going into it, you try and try and try, but you don't know that you're gonna make it. I know we did a fixed campaign too because the idea was that like we couldn't open the new store without the full amount of money but then it was like so we have to give all this money back Back. if we don't raise (laughs) it whose idea was this right Um, yeah I mean the one of my like favorite events I've ever planned I think was like the kickoff for the fundraiser that happened at the 16th street store what all was involved in that I mean I uh, was a fledgling event planner so I took on way too much for sure sure Um, I had it heavily programmed including um (laughs) including um doing like a reading beforehand like it even though it was like already kind of like a lively party, there were these people reading. Okay, now everybody like, be quiet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. So right. I learned about like over-programming, mm. over-programming fundraising parties in the future. But yeah. um, we had a photographer, Kabore, um, that took photos in, we had him set up in their backroom gallery. And uh, there was these paintings of naked women in the background. And uh, it like, people were so inspired that they like took their clothes off to have their oh, <laughs> pictures good. taken. Yeah. So yeah, it was just a really fun, memorable evening. Sure. Stuff um, you can't plan for. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. So you were part of that. I mean, I think a lot of listeners, I, I certainly remember, remember that, um, you know, we're always sad when we hear that places that we love are closing. A lot of it's happening right now, but, yeah. um, then, the unexpected, perhaps, thing with, is when places can survive. 
Yeah. Um, just. I mean, it's uh, you know, as bookstores in general, you know, are having issues. You know, there were some specific issues with that landlord. It's like mm-hmm. you know, the mission at that point, like, was in like to the high watermark of like a. Uh, overrunning with money mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. so a lot of evictions were happening mm-hmm. um and it i mean that was just there was so much community love for that space yeah i mean it was able to survive with a lot of people's hard work right um and yeah it was an incredible thing to be a part of and what really got gave me the experience to do the job here um while i was involved i also started working at these part-time jobs at like larger San Francisco museums. I had the same okay. kind of part-time job at Cal Academy, the Contemporary Jewish Museum and the Exploratorium. Oh wow. Basically coordinating mainly their private events. Okay. So I was more interested in public events, but that's kind of how I got started. Um, and I mean, that's all then how I got the job here as the original program manager. Um, but really it was like the experience at Adobe that gave, I mean, it's like more of a similar size as well, mm-hmm. uh, more of a similar kind of programming. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really what gave me the background and experience to, to do the job here. Let's hear the story of the founding of the <laughs> Tenderly. Yeah. So, I mean, I got hired two weeks before we opened, um, and as I'm the founding program manager, there was like one other employee, Melinda Uno who was our operations manager and then um, our original ED. Um, and then... That's Melinda Uno, season two, episode one. Yeah. For those of you who've been with us that We long. had an amazing experience working together. Um, yeah. So I'm a founding employee. I was hired two weeks before we opened in 2015 as the original program manager. And then I took over as director in 2016. Okay. And continued to do all of the public programming and like temporary exhibitions. Got it. Until 2021 when we hired Alex Bodo as the program director. And Mm -hmm. so now the two of us uh, share that work. Okay. And uh, yeah, he's taken the lead on like more of the weekly public programming, allowing me to have more time for like special projects like the play and Mm -hmm. uh, Neon Restoration and our sign and... uh, our expansion project into the basement. We're renovating that to create new exhibition space. And I mean, we had some other like neighborhood hires too, kind of doing visitor services work. Um, and a few of them stayed on with us. Um, but so if you were hired, who, like, who was doing the hiring? Who, who, who I'm assuming it was a group. Yeah, of so folks. I guess taking it more back to like the Tenderloin Museum opening, it was yeah. um, Randy Shaw's brainchild. Ah. Um, he wrote the book, The Tenderloin. Um, and before that book was published, like you couldn't really like, I mean, it was the first Tenderloin history book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, the Tenderloin has been kind of either ignored or written about negatively throughout mm-hmm. its entire history. Yep. Um, so a lot of like the research that the, our exhibitions are based on are, are his research from oh, got his it. book. Okay. Um, he was inspired, um, kind of part of our origin story is like part of his inspiration was going to the Tenement Museum in mm, New York. I've been. And realizing. It's incredible. Like that we have like just as rich of a history in this area. Yeah. 
and ours is and it's so there's like some similarities there and also mm -hmm. some huge differences because mm -hmm. we have more of a connective thread that connects to the present day okay, yeah, from right. our history, whereas like uh, that area is completely different. Right. That the Tenement Museum is yes. in. And it's all, also like very place-based. Like the, these buildings were here, these people lived here. Mm -hmm. um, so it's like a very place-based way of looking at history. And uh, I mean, he worked on the development of the museum for years. Mm. Uh, originally, I mean, the Uptown Tenderloin is our like legal nonprofit name, okay. which was formed in 2009. It's like a Tenderloin Historic Preservation. They work to get like a lot of the buildings on officially on like the historic registry. Right. They put like plaques with historical events like around the neighborhood. Okay. And uh, yeah, I mean, they raised the money. Um, you know, Sarah Wilson was like someone who worked to uh, help create the exhibition. She's still a friend of the museums. Okay. Um, so I wasn't involved in like what you see on the walls okay. necessarily, which is, I mean, beautiful. It's like a beautifully designed space with yes. like really fascinating history that's yes. like often left out of history books. Like we're really proud to showcase like working class history, uh, social justice history, um, and yes. amplifying the voices of marginalized communities mm -hmm. um, by front and like centering their histories. Um, and we do Can that. Can I just say fuck yeah? I mean, yeah. that's great. And, we and do that's that, what this neighborhood's all about. Yeah, and we do that through our public programming, like which is like a weekly practice. Mm -hmm. And that's how we're really able to center like the voices of people living here now. Mm. But like this space really, in, and the exhibitions like really inform it too. Because right. they like focus on on the histories, the history here, right? Um, of like socially marginalized people, right? Like, because the Tenderloin's kind of historically been a vice area in many different iterations mm -hmm. throughout history, mm -hmm. but you know, it's been a place that's often been a safe haven for those that don't quite fit into society's mainstream, mm -hmm. and uh, we can get more into that later or more into it now <laughs> totally your call i was just gonna mention the thing and it'll will probably come up but like especially for people who are newer to san francisco it's like the castro a wasn't always gay and it wasn't always the gay neighborhood right the tenderloin is the first gay neighborhood yeah yeah um and that's very much connected to its history. Mm -hmm. Like it's it's a history of having a high density of affordable housing, mm -hmm. history of like where things are, you know, kind of the powers that be allow things to transgress mm -hmm. here that they wouldn't other places. Mm -hmm. Under the shadows so, of City Hall. Yeah. So it's been, you know, <laughs> yeah. a pla place that like is somewhat outside the law is kind of like a liminal space that kind of right. creates space for people to kind of reject some of these social conventions mm -hmm. that now we would consider like progressive and normal right you know um they're challenged like the modern lgbtq civil rights movement started in the tenderloin right um and so you know things like uh women's independence uh housing rights issues harm reduction all of these ideas were like socially radical mm -hmm. um when the tenderloin was uh championing them that mm -hmm. then kind of have spread out across the country. So the Tenderlands really had like a huge impact on American history. Right. And that's something people do not realize. Right. So, I mean, we're here to tell that story and to, you know, support and celebrate 
the the community here today um, and invite them into this space. Um, and the fact that all those things sort of sprang out of this neighborhood is not coincidence. No. It's for this, a lot of the reasons you're talking about density, affordable housing, also just its status as a forgotten name. I don't know even what yeah. the term would be, but it's like maligned, maligned, liminal. <laughs> yeah, you said. yeah, ignored. Yeah, pushed aside under the rug. A containment zone is like the phrase people oh. use a lot today. As okay, well. yeah. And I, I do want to just, uh, I, I don't want to leave out the fact that this is not a past thing. It still happens now, to this day. It probably will continue. And to me, what y'all are doing is the, no, <laughs> there's so much more to this story. Yeah. And it's all, I think it's also a metaphor for San Francisco. Yeah. Getting generally shit on. <laughs> and then you're like, but we're here and we're doing great stuff. And also people are living their lives. And yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah, I was hired to do all the public programming, mm -hmm. which I continue to do. We now have Alex as a member of the team as well, who's um, kind of taken the lead on the weekly public programming. Okay. Um, but I've, you know, was the lead on it for like the seven years. Um, we've been open for eight, eight and a half years. Now. Okay. Um, that means 2015. Mm -hmm. So Yay, I think math. that's like how we... Uh, were successful early on was through the public programming. I mean, it's um, how we're able to like work with all the different community groups, how we're able to like invite people into this space. Um, I mean, daytime visitors were maybe slow at first, but the public programs were like a huge hit right away. Right. Um, one of our first like big hits actually was that got a lot of attention was the film Drugs in the Tenderloin. Are you familiar with this film? Yeah. Um, it sold out here. It was like the second program we ever did. Okay. It, we did it again. It sold out again. I had this idea of taking it to the Roxy, oh. which has been like this incredible partnership for us. Um, Lex Sloan at the Roxy. I love you. Shout out. <laughs> yeah. Boom. Um, and it's a film from. 1967 that uh, was produced by like with a grant from Reader's Digest and shown on public television. Oh, yeah. Robert Zagoni is the director. Okay. Um, and it was like hadn't been seen since then and just it was like it has this Insati the insatiable desire to see this film San Francisco <laughs> has it's um, I mean it has like incredible shots of the Tenderloin at that time and then like a lot of really like poignant interviews with people and I mean at its heart it's you know he was inspired to do it because he wanted to humanize the people that were like in these lurid headlines in mm -hmm. the news so, kind of what we were just talking about. Yeah, it has like yeah. a real progressive heart to it as well. Right. And yeah, those screenings at the Roxy, like there is, they told me there was a line around the block they had never seen before. Okay. And then we like in we decided right then to like add a bunch of other screenings when that one night was going so well. Yeah. Every single ticket sold out. 
Okay. <laughs> We've done it. We've screened it a handful of times since then, and it always completely sells out. At the Roxy? Um, we or... screened it at like a film festival, and then here, and then we took it back to the Roxy. All of those screenings have okay. sold out. <laughs> um, another one of like... My... I was going to say, are there upcoming... Sh- um... I think we might do showings, but like they're going to sell out. So like what what good is that to listeners? I think we might, uh, we should, we should take it back to the Roxy for like our uh, anniversary sometime. That sounds great. Yeah. Sign me up. Um, it's really good. Actually save me a seat. It's really good. Yeah. I know. I want to, um, I do. I, yeah, I, you sold it. I want to see it. Yeah. That was, uh, that was an important program for us. It like put us on a lot of people's radars. It's like the first time they heard the name because we were brand new, right? And it got so much attention. Okay. Um, and then one of, I mean, just talking about our programming and like some of my favorite programs that we've done. Um, the nineteen seventeen um, was when. Uh, so just like a little bit of background on Tenderloin history. Sure. So. Uh, in our museum exhibition, like the Tenderloin as we know it, pretty much after the 1906 earthquake, it was the neighborhood was pretty much entirely destroyed by the earthquake and fire. Right. The Hibernia Bank was the only building that was left standing. Okay. Um, so it was all built very quickly uh, right after that. Like the building we're in is the Cadillac Hotel, which was built in 1908. Okay. So you see like That's a fast. lot of yeah, a lot of cohesion with the architecture, mm-hmm. and it was built to house like men and women that were rebuilding the city after the earthquake and mm. like working downtown because okay. it's super right close to downtown. Mm-hmm. Um, so in like the early, like the 1910s, 19 this time, <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, there was like men and women living in like SROs. Um, like I mentioned, like, you know, the Tenderloin's history really is like that history of like having a high density of affordable housing. Mm-hmm. So it was all built around that time. And in these like single room occupancies mm-hmm. that have, you know, bathroom down the hall, don't necessarily have a kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one of the reasons why there was like so much entertainment in this area. Mm. So you have these single men and women like without, you know, there's like places to eat and places to drink. Um, and women were living on their own in these SROs and working downtown at their their own jobs, and that was mm. socially radical at the time. Right. Um, I mean, this is a full ten years before like the flapper movement. Right. Yeah. So and right before suffrage. Right. So it was, which of course was always overdue, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then also. Uh, at the same time period, you see like uh, moral crusaders um, shutting down the Barbary Coast. The other foot. right, the other entertainment the other, area yes. with like that had a lot of the sex work. So yeah. it was shut down by moral reformers in like 1913, I believe. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of that kind of vice industry starts coming into the Tenderloin, and it's becoming okay. like the new vice area. Okay. And then so the same like. Uh, moral reformers that uh, shut down the Barbary Coast then basically went after the Tenderloin for both the sex work and uh, their horror that women would be living on their own, going yeah. to a restaurant or bar on their own, Gotta and stop uh, that. making their own money, because oh, then they can't, can't be dependent yeah, on anyone if they make their own money. Yeah. Um, so shut they, it down. Yeah, there was um, the first ever sex worker protest in the country that we know about happened in the Tenderloin about a block away 
from where we are right now. Okay. Um, and we have an exhibition about it. Oh, great. Uh, Reggie Gamble st- stormed uh, a church where like the reverend that was speaking against this like moral this moral crusade and gave this like incredible speech that's still like incredibly relevant to today more than 100 about years like why are you attacking women for trying to like survive like why are you not attacking the conditions that are making it impossible for them to survive mm-hmm. and like you can't trust on god when shoes cost $20 and wages are $6 a week. Yes. Um, yeah. Reggie Gamble woman yeah. made that speech. So and, good. Um, so these same moral reformers then um, shut down the Tenderloin in 1917. Um, probably my favorite program we've ever done was like the centennial of that uh, sex workers rights protest. Mm-hmm. We had Ivy Anderson and Devin Angus here to speak. They had just published a book called Alice Memoirs of a Barbary Coast Prostitute that has letters to the editor written by a sex worker Mm. in this time period. Okay. And then we had like modern day sex workers and people involved in the movement speak about like the modern movement. And then we reenacted the protests and like read the original speech at the location. Wow. That sounds great. Yeah, I mean, that's what, I mean, we're all about amplifying the history of like marginalized communities Mm -hmm. and connecting it to the present day. Mm -hmm. And and we're also known for like historically inspired arts programs. And there's Hmm. quite a bit of artistry that like went into that recreation as well. Okay. Um, So that's like one of my, my favorite events we've ever done. That was Katie Conry, Executive Director of the Tenderloin Museum. Join us next week for part two with Katie. That episode drops Tuesday wherever you get podcasts. Music for Storied San Francisco was produced, performed, and curated by Otis McDonald. Aaron Lim of Bitch Talk Podcast is our contributing producer. And the show is produced and hosted by me, Jeff Hunt. Now in our sixth season, we have more than 200 episodes available on our website, storiedsf.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're able to, please rate and review the show, and drop us a line at storiedsf at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Keep rejecting those silly doom loop narratives about our city. Stay wacky, weird, healthy, and creative. And we'll see you next time on Storied San Francisco. We acknowledge and respect the first humans of the unceded land we call San Francisco, the Ramaytoshaloni. We condemn the genocide of these and other tribes across the Western Hemisphere. We honor their legacy and history, and we support rematriation and sovereignty efforts. This podcast is a proud member of the BFF.FM podcast network. Learn more at podcasts.bff.fm. BFF.fm, best frequencies forever.